Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, and the economy. I'm your host, David Stein, and this is episode two titled, What is Inflation and Deflation? So I read an article this week in Atlantic Magazine. Somebody tweeted, titled, Most People in the World Have No Idea How to Manage Their Money. And it it alluded to a study by a couple of professors that, uh, I can't even pronounce their name, but Anna Maria Luciardi and Olivia Mitchell. I guess that wasn't too hard to pronounce. But they did a study, and they went around the globe, and they asked three questions to the study's participants. So they did it in Germany, Switzerland, U.S., and Russia. Here are the three questions. First off, think about this. Only 30% of the people in the U.S. that were asked these questions could answer them. And these questions are easy. These are baby steps. But we're going to talk about them because if you don't know the answer, then you have a long way to go in terms of being able to manage your own money and understand the economy and how money works. Here's question number one. Suppose you had $100 in a savings account and the interest rate was 2% per year. After five years, how much do you think you would have in the account if you left the money to grow? A, more than $102. B, exactly $102. C, less than $102. Do not know Refuse to answer would be D. Now, why would somebody not want to answer the question if they agreed to do the study? But apparently some people did not want to answer. So, five years, $100, you earn 2% a year. How much are you going to have? Well, clearly more than $102 because after one year, you'd have $2 in interest. And then the second year, you earn another 2%, so you would, you would compound that. Simple question. Most people, in fact, 96% of Russians got, didn't get these questions right. 30% of Americans did not. That was easy. Question two is what we're going to focus on today's podcast because it's, it involves inflation. Here it is. Imagine that the interest rate on your savings account is 1% per year and inflation is 2% per year. After one year, would you be able to buy more than, which is A, B, exactly the same as, C, Less than today with the money in the account. D, do not know, refuse to answer. So again, interest rate is 1% a year on your savings, but inflation is 2%. And would you be able to buy more with those goods a year from now than you could today if inflation was 2%? Would you buy exactly the same amount today as you would a year from now? Or would you be able to buy less? I don't know. We're going to talk about that. The answer is you would be able to buy less because the rate of inflation is more than the, the money you're earning on your account. So you're actually losing welfare. You're, you have less money. That's the topic of our discussion today. But first, question three is if you can get this one right. Do you think that the following statement is true or false? Buying a single company stock usually, usually provides a safer return 
than a stock mutual fund? A, true, B, false, C, do not know, refuse to answer. That should be an easy one. A mutual fund has more stocks in it, and so it's more diversified. So theoretically, you would have a, should be able to provide a safer, and a safer return is a really kind of a bad, ba bad name for this because stocks go up and down, and, and stock, stocks by their nature are not necessarily safe. But when you just buy one company, you're, you're making a single bet. And one of the things I say, because whenever you buy a stock, you actually are predicting the future in the sense that you think the stock will go up in value. Otherwise, why buy the stock? And so one of the phrases I often use is the more specific the prediction, the more likely it's going to be wrong. And, and that something bad could happen or just something unexpected. And so if you only buy in one stock, more things could possibly go wrong as opposed to buying a basket of stocks, which is what you find in a mutual fund. And so in that case, a basket or a mutual fund would be a safer, or at least a more predictable type investment as you look out three or four years. Now, those are the three questions. We're going to circle back and focus on question two, which is what is inflation and what is deflation and, and, how, and how damaging inflation can be. Now, just for a definition, what inflation is it's a measure of the average price increase of a basket of goods and services. And so within in the U.S., for example, or other countries, there are statisticians with the government that calculate all these goods and services, and they calculate the average price increase in a given month or a given quarter. And whatever the average price increase is, if the price of that basket went up, then, then that's inflation. Now, the... And in any given month, I mean, there'll be some things going up in value and some things going down. So inflation is not just, say, gasoline going up in price because there's some things going down. But if the overall basket is going up, that's inflation. Now, if the overall basket is going down in price over a, a, a period of several quarters, that is what is known as deflation. Now, we've not had in the U.S. a whole lot of inflation here the last, really since, since the mid-80s, really early 90s, but especially the last 10 years, inflation has been very, very low. In fact, I don't have the, the number right in front of me, but I believe inflation over the past year is running just under 2%, so very much in control. Now, if inflation gets very, very high, over 10, 20, 30% or more, that's what's called hyperinflation. During the mid-80s, I lived in Mexico, and I was spending some time in the Yucatan and Chiapas, and they were experiencing hyperinflation. And, and I, at the time, I had no idea what inflation was. All I knew is that things were going up in price very rapidly. Now, it didn't, it didn't impact me as great because at the same time inflation was occurring, I still had dollars in my bank that I was using to live on it, so I, I could keep ahead of the game. But for the Mexicans there, we, I used to eat with, or we would pay a woman, a family, to prepare our morning meal and our afternoon meal. And, and then I'd go to her at night, and she, I, she didn't prepare an evening meal. I actually would eat cornflakes. I'd buy cornflakes, or in Mexico they'd call them, at least I'd call them cornflakes, because it was in Mexico, which I, I can never understand why Kellogg 
didn't translate cornflakes into Spanish. They did for frosted flakes. Those were sucaritas, but cornflakes were cornflakes. And I would buy my box of cornflakes and I would go uh, to this woman and she would give me a, a jar full of warm raw milk and then I'd go home and I would eat my cornflakes with my warm milk. Now the price of cornflakes kept going up and up and up. And this lady would just, would, would just be so upset because we would pay her at the beginning of the month to, to make us a food and, and feed us for the month. Well, inflation was running 10% a month, or just under 10% a month. So in, in, in that, I think in 1985, inflation in Mexico was over 100%. Imagine if you just had a fixed income and it wasn't, wasn't catching up with that. And that's, that's a problem with inflation because oftentimes our income doesn't keep up with the, the jump in prices. And I, I definitely saw that in Mexico, in fact, what we would, we would be prepared and we were eating at the beginning of the month usually involves some type of meat. But by the end of the month, because prices were rising, we were eating a lot of what was called chayote, which was his soup, which is chayote is his vegetable that I think is one step in, in terms of its taste over Brussels sprouts. So that, that's how little I like chayote, but that's what we would eat. One of the things you found with hyperinflation is you go to the post office and the stamps wouldn't keep, they keep raising the price to mail a letter back to the states, but they didn't have stamps to do that. So I'd mail these letters and literally they would be covered with, with 20, 20 postage stamps because they didn't have stamps in large enough denominations. At the same time, they had to keep issuing new money because a peso became practically worthless. worthless. And so when I got there, they used to have 50 peso bills, but after a year, they, those, those just were like not worth a whole lot. And so they would keep issuing more currency and bigger denominations. So you're walking around with 10,000 peso notes. And that was hyperinflation. And it was caused, and that's what we're going to talk about, what, what, what causes inflation? Right? This average increase in the price of goods and services. Well, what causes inflation is, as we talked about last time in episode one, the and how money is created. Governments create money by spending. Banks create money by lending. And so banks and the gov federal government have an unlimited capacity with some constraints to create as much money as they want. Yet in the economy, there's only so, many, there's only so much output that be, can be created in the short term. There's only so many workers. There's only so many factories. There's only so many stores or services, so many barbers giving haircuts. Now, over time, as the population increases or, or individuals or businesses become more efficient, we can, they can create more output. But within a, a shorter time period, like a year, there's only so much output. And so if the government is creating a ton of money and banks are creating a lot of money through lending, that can cause an overall increase in the average price of goods and services. It can cause inflation, which inflation destroys wealth, as I saw in Mexico. When you have inflation of 100%, wealth is being destroyed. Now, there's a, there's a couple wrinkles to inflation because the, you have to take into account, and statisticians take into account, the quality of goods and services. So, so let's, for example, a computer that comes out today might have a certain fast processor and a certain screen resolution. And in a year from now, 
that computer might be just a little more expensive but have a faster processor and an even more high-definition screen. Now, is that price increase due to inflation or is it due to an increase in quality? In fact, maybe after you adjust for the quality of the newer computer, the prices of computers drops. And so that's one of the things to factor in when it comes to inflation, the quality of the goods, because over time quality improves. But ultimately, inflation is that average increase in the price of goods and services. Here's the thing on inflation, though. Who, who decides what the prices are? Well, those are businesses. And, and here's where inflation gets a little bit tricky because the consumers and the businesses were human, we're emotional. And so we make decisions not based on, in some regards, what we think prices are going to be. And so there's this psychological element to it. For example, back with me living in Mexico, eating my corn flakes at night with my raw, warm milk, something I don't recommend. If I thought uh, the price of cornflakes kept going up and up, and so if, if I could, I should have stockpiled that, those cornflakes. So I had four or five or, or ten boxes. Sam's Club didn't exist at this time. But when individuals believe that inflation is going to take hold, you don't want to hold any money, especially if you're in a hyperinflation environment. You, as soon as you get money, you want to spend it because the value of that money is falling over and over. Now, in my case, I did not stockpile cornflakes because in our little house that we lived in, we had rats, and the rats would actually run in, and they loved boxes of cornflakes. So I would, would do my best to hide the one box I can and eat it as fast as I could. But that's the thing with inflation. There's a psychological element. And if businesses think the supplies of, of their inputs for their factories are going to go up, they might stockpile them. And so if inflation is caused by... So a lot of money chasing a limited amount of goods and services, then just that, that the individual stockpiling goods actually puts more pressure on the output that's being created, further driving up prices. And so you can have this kind of this circular uprise in prices as people are reacting to what's going on and start acting as if inflation is there. And that actually exacerbates the issue of inflation. The other thing that influences inflation is just global supply and demand of commodities. A lot of commodities, energy, oil, copper, get our, our inputs into goods and services. And so that's what inflation is. How, how is it controlled? What, what, what do we do to control inflation? Well, first off, we, the, way, the, the institution that controls inflation are the central banks. Right. If most of inflation is caused by bank lending and when the economy expanding and things are going well, that's when banks want to lend because credit quality is high in terms of those that wanting to borrow. And and the the animal spirits of individuals in in the economy, they want to borrow because they want to expand business, want to expand. So everybody's all goosed up and, and, and wanting to borrow. Yet there's still that limited amount of capacity and banks are lending. And the only way to really solve or stop inflation is if make businesses and individuals less willing to borrow. And what's the primary driver of whether somebody wants to borrow or not? Certainly their willingness, but also what's the interest rate? And so the way that the central bank controls inflation is if they see inflation pressures arising, they'll actually work to raise interest rates, and hopefully that will cause 
businesses and individuals who want to borrow less. And so then you, if you're borrowing less, less money is being created. And so you have less money chasing that limited output of goods and services. And that, that's the primary way inflation is controlled. And that's, that's why so much focus in the media is focused on central banks and where they think inflation is going to be and what rates are going to be. In today's environment, inflation is very, very low and interest rates are at rock bottom. And so one of the, the things that, that, that many investors and, and the media are speculating on is when will the Federal Reserve in the U.S., the central bank, start raising interest rates to potentially head off inflation that could be coming down the road. Right now, there's not really any inflationary pressures, but there are some brewing under the surface, particularly when it comes to wages paid to employees. But it's something to be monitored. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. Now, let's flip the discussion to deflation, which is the exact opposite. It's, it's a drop in the average pr- price in goods of goods and services within a basket. Now, what what would cause prices to drop? Well, if inflation is caused by too much money chasing a limited 
output of goods and services. Deflation would be caused by an excess capacity. In other words, factories are not running at full steam. There's excess capacity in power, in power plants. Workers are laid off. There's a high degree of unemployment. So there's excess capacity. Now, deflation is caused because of businesses make the decision they're not going to run at, at maximum output because they don't believe they'll be able to sell their production of their goods or, the, or of their services. And so they don't produce as much. And in fact, if they don't see the demand out there, the potential demand, they might actually lower prices in order to s s sort of so uh, soak up the remaining demand that is out there. So you can have a downward spiral because if businesses start to drop prices and because they see a drop in demand, then consumers, you also have this psychological element, they'll say, well, maybe I don't want to buy yet because it could come on sale a month from now. So consumers are sort of hesitant to bar or to, to buy. Businesses are dropping, and so you have essentially a drop in prices. Deflation can be very, very dangerous because once it takes toll, it is very, very hard to get rid of. Because just like with inflation, the way that it's controlled is through interest rates. And so if the Federal Reserve in the U.S., the central bank or the Bank of England in England, decide that there is a risk of deflation, they'll want to drop interest rates. And, and ideally, by dropping interest rates, then businesses will be willing to borrow to expand output and consumers be willing to borrow to, to, to purchase things. But think about that. If the economy is slowing and interest rates are going, or excuse me, economy is slowing, unemployment is going up, and, and workers are, or maybe they're not unemployed, but they're worried about their jobs, and so there's not a huge desire to actually borrow money. And so it's hard once deflation takes hold because in order to get those inflationary forces, you need more money going through the economy. And if individuals are not borrowing and businesses are not borrowing, then you're not having banks create money. So the only backstop you have is the government through what's called fiscal policy, their willingness to run a deficit. In other words, to spend more than they take in in taxes. So there's actually money being created, net money being created by the government going out there and, and buying goods and services, and hopefully that stoking at least some of the inflationary pressures. Because deflation is so worrisome and so difficult to get rid of, mainly because of that psychological aspect, central banks and federal governments are willing to allow some level of inflation. And so their targets typically are 2 to 3%, because they just don't want to get too close to the edge of deflation where they might fall in. And so they allow a little bit of leeway. And that inflation is generally there because banks in a typical environment are lending. So debt balances are going up and so money is being created. Governments typically run some level of deficit. So you have money, a budget deficit, you have money being created there. And so there is some level of inflation. Hyperinflation though is rare, like I saw in, in the mid 80s in Mexico. For hyperinflation to exist, you, you basically need an incredible central bank, really a stupid central bank. It just can't get things under control. Or you have a government that is completely out of control with their spending. And, and generally, those are signs of some type of failed state, be it Zimbabwe or, or just some unusual transition like what occurred in, in Mexico where you had a huge economic crisis. 
But in a typical, if, 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 with a credible central bank and a credible federal government, now, no, not perfect, right, flaws, but credible, generally speaking, you don't have hyperinflation. You have inflation in the 2 to 4% range. If it gets much higher, the, federal, the, the central bank raises interest rates, tries to dampen demand so they can get inflation under control. So how do you protect against inflation? Well, one way is not keep all your investments in cash because the, the guaranteed way for your money to lose value. So a year from now, you actually will be able to purchase less with your money than you could today is by keeping in cash. And we go back to that, that article in Atlantic where they, they asked that question that they did in that study where it asked, well, if you only earned 1% on your savings account and inflation was at 2%, in other words, the average price increase was going up 2% a year, you would actually be able to buy less a year from now. And so the way to actually outpace inflation is to at least earn a rate of return on your investments that equals inflation. The way to create real wealth is to earn a rate of return that is greater than inflation or outpaces it. Now, there's many investments that do that. The stock market, for example, tends to earn more than inflation, although in a later podcast, we'll talk about some of the risk with the stock market. The best inflation hedge tends to be what are called real assets. In other words, something like real estate or timber, hard goods, substances that tend to outpace inflation over time. They're a real resource. They create some level of income that is greater than inflation. Because think about it, if inflation is the average increase in goods and services, then having a good or something real, like a piece of real estate or some land, that will tend to rise with inflation, and so it can outpace it. And then if it can earn a little bit of rental income on top of that, that's great. Commodities is, or commodities futures tend to do well if inflation is unexpected. In other words, everybody didn't think prices are going to go up, but suddenly you have a, an inflation shock, just something unexpected. Commodities or commodity futures tend to do well. Commodities being oil, gas, to, to some extent, precious metals, but really energy-type things because a lot of, of inflation is driven by the cost of energy. So that is the end of, of episode number two of Money for the Rest of Us. That is what inflation is. That is what defla deflation is, and that's what to do about it. I will include the show notes for this podcast episode. Episode number two will be on moneyfortherestofus.net. There you can find the show notes. There you can, I would encourage you, if you would, to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or one of the other services so that you can be informed at any time. We do it, do it weekly, so you'll be able to get it. Also, if you have any questions on inflation or deflation or how money is created or, or any future topic, please email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. Thanks for joining us, and I will see you on the next episode. Just one more thing, the information and opinions contained on this podcast are for educational purpose only. It does not consider the economic status or risk profile of any specific person, and the information should not be construed as investment trading advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy and sell securities. Any return expectations provided are not intended as and must not be regarded as a representation, warranty, or prediction 
that an investment will achieve any particular rate of return over any particular time period or those investors will not incur losses. Thanks.